Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory and general medical registrar in the KSS Deanery. And this is a podcast about general medicine for anyone in healthcare by the Education Department at the Royal College of Physicians. The aim of this podcast is to demystify medicine, simplify guidelines and research, and translate them into everyday practice. This episode is going to focus on the acute hot joint. So let's start with Mrs. Maple. She's an 84-year-old woman who's presenting to the medical team with a high temperature and she's off legs. She's normally very mobile in spite of her osteoarthritis, which she actually manages quite well with paracetamol. But she's noticed over a couple of days she's been feeling very tired and she's complaining of left knee pain, which is worse than a normal osteoarthritis pain. In fact, it's got so bad that she's now finding it difficult to bend her knee at all. Now, she's recently been treated for a low respiratory tract infection with antibiotics, but she's actually been quite well from that. And when she went out shopping early this week with her daughter, she tripped over and remembers hurting her knee. She didn't lose consciousness. She denies any of the symptoms at all. She's had no nausea, vomiting, no diarrhea. She's eating well and sleeping well. She takes aspirin, bendoflumothiazide and paracetamol and cod liver oil tablets. Now, on examination, she looks in pain and she actually doesn't look very well at all. Her temperature is 37.8. Her heart rate is 96 beats per minute. Blood pressure, 158 over 86. And a respiratory rate of 18. Her heart sounds are normal and her chest is clear. The left knee is red, swollen and tender and there is significantly restricted movement. The ankle joint and the hip joint on the left side are okay, and the right lower limb joints are fine. The hands show Hebbidens and Bouchard's nodes consistent with the diagnosis of osteoarthritis. So, I'm pretty concerned about this left knee. So, what do you think's going on? Yeah, so... Uh quite a few things going on actually if you know if I was receiving that as a referral so first of all her age at 84 um, she's presented off legs uh, not feeling quite right for the last two days also had a recent illness with a lower respiratory tract infection um, and I suppose with anyone who's coming off legs and with a fall I'm also thinking is there something that's caused the fall like you know something cardiogenic um, but obviously you said she didn't lose consciousness but um, I think with those examination findings, the slightly high temperature, um, you're thinking, okay, what's going on in that joint? Um, I think the important thing for me to think is, was it caused by the fall? You know, has she just okay. banged it quite hard? Um, you know, make sure she's had an X-ray um, before it's coming over to us and the medics. Um, but if she herself was saying that it was painful before the fall, um, a little bit swollen, um, I would think, you know, is this a septic arthritis? Um, and I suppose the fact she's also got osteoarthritis just makes me think, oh, is that a risk factor for possibly having something going on with, with this kind of joint? Yeah, absolutely. And um, any hot joint is septic until proven otherwise. Right. So because we know that septic arthritis can have devastating effects on a patient's joint. Um, and we will go on to discuss later about the long-term implications of septic arthritis. So it's really important to rule septic arthritis out. And interestingly, 35% of, of septic arthritis occurs in abnormal joints. Gosh. So because of her osteoarthritis, she is already at an increased risk of developing septic arthritis. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, so you've got a hot joint. You mentioned septic arthritis and a knee injury. Any other differentials? Um, so I suppose, you know, given that thorough examination, she's got, you know, other sort of extra articular features of, of osteoarthritis. Um, so, you know, with the hepatin nodes and, and, and all that. So whether there's an, another joint pathology going on, um, I think with medicine, we always think about gout. Yeah. Um, you mentioned she was on aspirin. Um, so again, with a heavy fall, I think, you know, is there some bleeding going on in the joint? Yeah, it's a really good thought. Yeah. Um, hemarthrosis. Um, but I think otherwise, if it's, yeah, swollen, tender, red, fever, it's, yeah, as you said, sepsis till proven otherwise. Yeah, and just to recap, other co- so other causes of a hot joint, and not necessarily in our patient, Miss, Mrs. Maple, but other patients, you need to think about... Um, Pseudogout. Right. Or calcium pyrophosphate deposition, crystal arthritis, um, bursitis okay. is a possibility. So that often doesn't affect the joint itself, but will be the bursa around the joint. Um, could this be an underlying TB, septic arthritis? Could it be Lyme's disease, septic arthritis? So you're really looking at the sort of more unusual things here. Could it be a reactive arthritis? Um, or, an infl- or a new presentation of an inflammatory arthritis. So this is a, is this a first presentation of rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. So these are sort of things always to just keep in the back of your mind, just to think about. However, I completely agree, this patient's got a septic joint until proven otherwise. So how are you going to investigate it? Uh, so I'll make sure all the, the baseline stuff's done first. So obviously make sure she's had an X-ray of the knee to make sure there's no fracture. Um, again, you know, just thinking outside the box, you know, if she had a recent respiratory tract infection, make sure she's had a chest x-ray and there's no sort of worsening infection there. Um, all the routine blood, so full blood count to look at the white cell count, um, CRP, um, also maybe just check her clotting uh, and her platelet count because I'd probably want to be sticking a needle in this um, given the examination findings. Um, I think it's also important just not to forget things like urine dipstick, um, could that have been another cause of the fall? Um, and blood cultures, if she's febrile. Okay, so the British Society of Rheumatology have got some guidelines on the hot joint. Now, these are published in 2006. Um, they are due to be updated in the next couple of years, but they are still relevant um, in today. So, what they say is whenever you've got an acute hot joint, you must aspirate the joint. And that's what you said. However, there is one definite contraindication to aspiration of a joint, and that is a prosthetic joint. Yeah. So if you've got a prosthetic joint, then you must contact the orthopaedic team. So don't go sticking a needle in, because that can be really, really damaging to the prosthetic joint and the patient. Yeah. They also say that if it's a hip joint, you're going to need aspirating and ultrasound. Um, It's very difficult to do it sort of blindly, so always again ensure that you contact the orthopaedic team. Okay, so we're going to go and aspirate the joint. And when I've aspirated the joint, I'm going to look at the fluid. So what colour is it? So normal synovial fluid is often a clear, sort of, often with a tinge of yellow. It almost looks a bit like acidic fluid. Right. However, if it's septic, it will often be quite cloudy, quite turbid. Sometimes you get pus out. Um, If they've got a gout or a crystal gout, then that can often be um, sort of a turbid colour as well. It's often very difficult to actually say what it is just by looking at the colour. So then you look at the cell count. 
So when you look at the cell count actually within the sample, if it's looking at, particularly looking at the white cells, if they're greater than 100,000 white cells, that indicates that it's possibly septic in nature. Going to do a grant stain and culture. Now the paper from the BSR says that this will be positive in around 70% of cases. So even if you have septic arthritis, the gram stain and culture will be negative in 30% of cases. Right. Gout. So you also need to look for gout. So there when you, you need to look for the crystals and you need to do polarising microscopy. And again, you mentioned um, look, doing blood cultures, white cell count, ESRCRP, all of which are suggested by the guideline. They do also say do an x-ray which you said, but that's not only to look for a flat fracture, it's also to look for underlying joint disease. Yeah. So particularly looking for chondrocalcinosis, if you're thinking of pseudogout. Um, you may also want to think about an ultrasound, if it's the hip, and an MRI. Right. So you want to do an MRI of the knee or any other joint that may be affected if you're thinking they've got osteomyelitis. Okay. That's really important to look at as well. Now, interestingly, the BSR did do a little bit of an update on their guidelines last year, and they looked at serum procalcitonin. Now, this is a precursor of calcitonin, and it's very, very low in normal, healthy individuals, but very high in the presence of bacterial endotoxins. So there's been some very small studies done. However, it has suggested that if you've got a high procalcitonin level, it indicates that you've possibly got a bacterial sepsis may be used as a possible adjunct in the diagnosis of septic arthritis. It's more of a watch this space than actually go ahead and request procalcitonin on all our patients. I'm presuming it's probably not widely available or easy to get hold of yet. No, and certainly in um, the hospitals I've worked at, it's not possible yet. So I'm not sure what about yourself. Have you... Yeah, no, it's, it's not something that I've, I've come across uh, recently. But yeah, we'll watch that space if it's uh, that useful uh, for us to So, Mrs. Maple is feverish. We know her left knee is very, very painful. And after some pain relief, she agrees to, to any aspiration. So, would you be happy to do that? Uh, interesting. I, I would be. Um, if I'm honest, and I'd be interested to hear the thoughts of other medical registrars and core trainees at the moment, but I find knee aspiration is actually quite a rare procedure to come across uh, in hospital. Uh, certainly on the acute take, um, it's actually rare to find acute hot joint as the sort of presenting complaint. And in my experience, it's normally come across sort of three or four days um, into a patient's stay or the, you know, the existing patients on the medical wards where um, I've come across these. Um, I'm probably never 100% confident just because it's not a procedure that a, as me as a non-rheumatology trainee will be doing every day or every week. Um, but I think it's a it's a nice procedure. It's it's not full of sort of very scary complications or, or what. Um, I'll be honest here though. There's have been occasions where I have put in a needle with some confidence and nothing comes out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's not uncommon. Um, you did say something very interesting. Then you said that patients with a hot joint are often picked up two to three days throughout their admission. Why do you think that is? I I think it's just it's that kind of bread and butter basic skill it's just fully exposing the patient yeah absolutely um, I think you know we're all guilty of it as healthcare professionals you know with this one I was already making my mind up oh she's had a recent respiratory tract infection that must be the source um, but we've all been there in you know busy environments busy workplaces where 
sometimes looking at the whole body um, is is not always done. Uh, yeah, and I've certainly, um, when I've been registrar on call, um, been asked to see patients who have become very, very unwell, sort of have a septic picture, may have been in hospital, again, for two to three days, and nobody's examined their joints. And I remember one particular case, an elderly lady, actually very similar to this, who had a very large knee fusion, and it turned out to be a septic arthritis. So it really reiterates the importance of examining the whole patient. And particularly if you've got a septic patient, we always assume that, it, oh, it's a UTI, oh, it's a respiratory tract infection. Look at the joints, actually, because sometimes there's something hidden there that we often miss. Okay, so you've done your knee aspiration, um, you look at it and it looks pretty cloudy. You send it to the lab, how long do you, does it take to come back from the lab, the results? Oh, in my experience, quite a while. <laughs> um, but no, I think with, you know, if you've got the time to chase things up yeah. and if your communication is good with the lab to suggest, you know, what you're suspecting, then an hour, two yeah, I guess it depends where you work, doesn't it? And at the time of the day. So you do your knee aspiration, you send a sample in sort of your white topped sort of the, your universal container bottles and you send it for um, white cell count and gram stain. You must let the lab know. So they're expecting the sample. And also you can send it for crystal analysis as well. And again, let the lab know that that's what you want them to look at. Then they're aware of it and they can often do it a lot quicker. So um, whilst you're waiting for the results of this patient, the white cell count comes back at 13.6, her ESR is 40, her CRP is 37, her creatinine is 113 and her urea is 7.8 and her x-ray is awaited. So whilst we're sort of ruminating on those results, let's think about the risk factors of developing septic arthritis. Now we've already mentioned that 35% of septic arthritis occurs in abnormal joints. Can you think of any other risk factors? Um, so just going on her history, I suppose, recent infection, um, maybe something that's been partially treated, uh, not fully recovered from. Um, I don't know if elderly people are more susceptible. Um, we've touched on it earlier that if you've got existing metal work, um, although we won't be sticking a needle in it, but you know, having a foreign body, um, you know, in, in inside a joint is, I presume, a risk factor. Um, those are the ones that I'm thinking on the top of my head. Okay, so there are a few other ones. So we know that um, intravenous drug users, right, yeah, um, are prone to developing septic arthritis. Those with diabetes mellitus, ulcerations, like you said, a prosthetic joint underlying rheumatological disease, so rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, high alcohol intake um, as possible, um, patients from a lower socioeconomic background, um, recent steroid injection, obviously you've had a foreign body injected into the knee, so again that can increase your risk. Um, those who are immunosuppressed as well, so you can break your immunosuppression down into relative immunosuppression, such as the elderly, those with diabetes and those who drink high levels of alcohol, and absolute immunosuppression. So patients who may be on biologic therapies, yeah. um, disease-modifying medications, and individuals with HIV. I suppose with, with that, there's probably a double-edged sword in that you've got patients with rheumatological conditions already as a risk factor, and then if they're on biological therapy for their rheumatoid arthritis, that in itself is a, 
which is as well. So I suppose it's, is it a balance that you talk to your patients about? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you always need to obviously talk to the patients about it. And if you've got a patient who is immunosuppressed on disease modifying drugs, biologics, always speak to the rheumatologist as well. Yeah. Okay, so you've got your patient, you're still waiting for those results to come back. Yeah. Are you going to start antibiotics? I, I would consider starting them in this lady. I think given the history, uh, the temperature, uh, there are some infection markers raised such as the CRP and ESR. Um, I think it would be very bold not to start antibiotics uh, without any results. And, you know, I know we're all very hot, pardon the pun, on sepsis. <laughs> uh, and, you know, starting antibiotics very quickly. And if this was a referral, I would probably suggest that antibiotics have probably already been started um, in A&E. Um, uh, yeah, we know that if you suspect septic arthritis, you should treat it. It's always good to get the aspirate before you treat it. Because obviously if you've given it lots of antibiotics and you haven't aspirated, it may lead to um, difficulty in interpreting the culture itself. Um, but if we do, don't do treat the septic arthritis, untreated it can lead to around 10% mortality. Um, and delayed treatment can also lead to irreversible joint destruction. So, um, And if the infection isn't treated, it can actually spread into the surrounding bone and cause osteomyelitis. So if you think about it, it's better to get the antibiotics in and then stop them rather than waiting, 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 waiting. Absolutely. And I, I think in my experience, I think to, to get someone confident enough to actually do the neaspirate in the first place um, sometimes takes a bit of a time in itself. So I'd be very aware of not delaying antibiotics for, you know, hours, half a day, a day sometimes. Uh, de definitely not. And, you know, as we said before, knee aspiration is quite a nice procedure to do. Um, we should all be trained in it and able to do it, particularly as um, core trainees and registrars in medicine. And um, if in doubt or you haven't had any training in it, try and find a local rheumatologist or an acute physician who will happily train you in it, let you go to a joint injection clinic and just be, get familiar with the knee itself and the knee aspiration technique. Okay, you're going to give antibiotics. What are you going to give? Oh, default answer, something broad spectrum. Okay, yep. Any suggestions? Uh, Coamoxiclav. Okay, so look at the guidelines. So you, you, you will often have local guidelines um, in your hospital, depending on what bugs are common in that, in your local area. But I'd often go for flucloxacillin. Okay. Around 91% of all of the septic arthritis are staph or strep, and flucloxacillin will cover this. So you often give intravenous for two weeks, followed by oral for around four weeks. Um, however, there are special cases. Now, if you've got a patient who's had MRSA, they've been in a nursing home, they've got cutaneous ulcers, they've recently been discharged from hospital, or they've got a urinary catheter, they are at an increased risk of MRSA, so you often add vancomycin as well. Um, in addition to that, an elderly patient who's frail, who's had a urinary tract infection or recent abdominal surgery, think of gram-negative sepsis and adenocephalosporin. Yeah. And also, if you've got a septic joint or you think it's a septic joint in a younger patient who's sexually active um, and they've got a fever, maybe some urethritis or a pustular rash, think about gonorrhea and think about treating for gonococcal septic arthritis. Um, TB, not common, but in endemic areas, particularly if you're working some of the inner city 
city, uh, inner city areas, then you need to think about TB. If you do think it's TB, septic arthritis, discuss this with a local microbiologist or infectious diseases consultant. Yeah. Again, fungal case, fungal infection as well. So these are the more rare cases, always worth thinking about. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to give us some flucloxacillin until we know that this joint isn't infected. Now, in the BSR update that they did on their guidelines last year, they talked about corticosteroids what? as an adjunct to antibiotics. Now, I know this is quite a controversial area in the management of sepsis, and a paper by Farrow in 2015, which will be acknowledged in the show pages, shows that corticosteroids decrease the CRP quicker, they had a quicker resolution of symptoms, and a shorter duration of antibiotics was needed in septic arthritis. However, again, it was quite a small trial. There still have been no significant trials, so there's no definite role for the use of corticosteroids. But again, watch this space. Okay, so you've given us some antibiotics. Now, if you think it's septic, you might want to speak to the orthopaedic surgeons. Sometimes they may go in and arthroscopically um, aspirate the joint to dryness or uh, do a closed aspiration, closed needle aspiration, or they may do a washout at this point. However, before we've got to that stage, Mrs. Maple's results come back and they show a positively birefringent rhomboidal shaped crystal. <laughs> Any suggestions? So this is the typical answer in a PACES or MRCP yeah. case. So I always get mixed up. It's either diagnostic of either gout or pseudo-gout. Okay. So rhomboidal crystals are classic in pseudo-gout, or as we like to call it, calcium pyrophosphate deposition, um, crystal arthropathy. So she's got pseudo-gout. So pseudogout is the deposition of calcium pyrophosphate in the hyaline cartilage or the fibre cartilage. And it is thought that the crystals are shed into the surrounding joint space, which triggers an acute immune response. It increases with age and it's associated with injury. We know that she had a fall and injured her knee. It's also associated with some more rarer conditions like hereditary hemochromatosis, low magnesium levels, low phosphate levels, and hyperparathyroidism. So if you've got somebody with CPPD arthritis, you may just want to think about looking at these other conditions as well. Yeah, okay. Um, however, you can still get septic arthritis and gout or pseudogout at the same time. Gosh. Okay, so think of, have you heard of Hickam's dictum? No. Okay, so um, Hickam's dictum is, uh, a patient can have as many well diseases as they damn well please. Okay, okay so just because you've found crystal arthropathy doesn't mean they haven't got pseudogout or, sorry, it doesn't mean you haven't got septic joint as well. Yeah. Okay. Now, also another pearl of wisdom, which I got from a local rheumatologist I'm, I'm working with, he said that a crystal arthropathy or a pseudogout, often it's more acute. So will often be in a day or two, whereas a septic arthritis will often be the onset over days and sometimes longer, but it's usually less than two weeks. Okay, you've got your crystal arthropathy, what are you going to do? So I suppose if we ruled out septic arthritis, yeah. we could confidently stop the antibiotics. Yeah, okay. Um, and then you want to actually treat the cause directly. So 
some form of anti-inflammatory treatment. Okay, so we know that her kidney function was a little bit off. Yes. So would you be happy to start non-steroidals? Ooh, she's quite elderly as well, already on aspirin. Um, I'd have to be very cautious, yeah. Um, so I suppose injections? Of? Steroids. Yeah, okay. So from the non-steroidal point of view, I'm always very reluctant in starting anti-inflammatories in patients with a little bit of renal dysfunction who are already on aspirin because they often start them and for some reason they don't get stopped. Um, or, you know, it can make their kidneys worse. So, um, yeah, I think intraarticular steroids are a possibility. Um, however, they're not always appropriate. Um, the patient sometimes may be reluctant to have further um, sort of injections around the knee joint, but they're a really good treatment for pseudogout. Um, non-steroidals we've talked about. If you are going to start non-steroidals, always give proton pump inhibitor therapy cover because um, we want to protect, um, do some gastric protection. You can try colchicine. Yeah. So colchicine, um, the maximum dose of colchicine is 1.8 milligrams per day. Um, you often start at 500 micrograms sort of three times a day. It's quite a good dose. Um, however, what's the side effect of colchicine that patients don't like? Oh, got me there. Diarrhea. Okay. So if you're giving high dose colchicine, you're causing diarrhea. What's that going to do to the kidneys? Yeah, she's already at risk with that renal function, and she's elderly, so yeah. it's yeah, it's that balance. Is the it's side a real effects. balancing act, and this is where shared decision making is really important. So you need to have the conversation with the patient and explain the risks and the benefits of all of the different types of treatment. Again, this will be in conversation with your local rheumatologist. Um, or an acute physician who's happy to manage this condition. So always, always involve the patient. So yeah, I agree. We've tried some intraarticular steroids and hopefully she's going to get better. Now, what about gout? So gout is a monosodium uric acid crystal arthropathy. Again, similar presentation. And again, the management is very, very similar. Yeah. With our non-steroidals, with PPI cover, Colchicine is also very effective. Now, interestingly, colchicine comes from the autumn crocus and was first used by the Greeks like 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Um, and it was a purgative. So patients or individuals are given colchicine because it helped get rid of lots of things in the system, cause diarrhea, cause vomiting, and actually helped treat a lot of conditions probably just coincidentally help treat the gout but that's sort of where it came from however we only really started to use colchicine around 100 years ago for gout and pseudo gout in addition in actual gout you can use steroids as well so you can use prednisolone either one milligram per kilogram stat dose or 20 to 40 milligrams once daily for five days it's quite effective Advise patients if they do have an affected joint, so in Mrs. Maple's case, to rest it and often ice packs. So ice packs are good at just sort of reducing the pain and the heat. Yeah. More of a local sort of help with that. And do you try to encourage sort of periods of mobility, sort of getting them on their feet as quickly as possible, or is it pure rest and I definitely never advocate pure rest. Um, I think it's really important to get every patient in hospital on the feet as soon as possible. And again, that's because of the risk of venous thromboembolism in any inpatient yeah. in hospital. Yeah. So um, I think when we've treated 
We know that it's not septic arthritis. We've treated the pseudo gout. I think we need to discharge as soon as possible after she's been seen by the right um, team. Yeah. Um, I'm always worried about being in hospital too long, getting blood clots or getting infections, chest infections. So discharge as soon as is safe really for the patient. Yeah. Um, we do know as well that um, anybody with pseudo gout, it can be recurrent. When you've had it once, you can have it again. Um, but it does get better very quickly with the right treatment. However, patients can develop a calcium pyrophosphate crystal arthropathy, very similar to osteoarthritis, and can lead to quite significant joint destruction. And little can be done. Right. So just maybe make the patients aware that this is a possibility yeah. as well. Um, okay, so uh, she had an x-ray, which showed chondrocalcinosis, which is again classic of... Cedo gout. So who's going to follow this lady up? Uh, so I would suggest in the first instance rheumatology. Yeah. Um, or ambulatory care perhaps. Yeah. Um, possibly might be quicker to get an appointment sort of a couple of weeks post-discharge in an ambulatory, ambulatory care unit. Um, physiotherapy. Yeah, might possibly. be useful. Yep. Yeah, and certainly prior to discharge, make sure that she's seen by the physiotherapist and the occupational therapist, possibly, just to make sure that she's back on her feet and she's confident going back home. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think that sort of covered the hot joint. One other condition I just wanted to briefly mention is reactive arthritis. Yeah. So that can also present with a hot joint and is often... Patient may have had a recent salmonella infection, yeah. recent chlamydia infection or shigella infection often accompanied by urethritis, conjunctivitis and uveitis. So always just worth thinking about. Is this the typical writer's syndrome, is it? Yeah, I remember... God, I haven't heard you call that for years. <laughs> I remember reading about it in the medical textbooks, kind of yeah. the, the typical triad of young patient, make yeah. sure you take the sexual history. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is the importance of making sure you examine joints um, in this case. Yeah. yeah. So just to finish then, a little bit of history on gout. So gout was actually first identified by the Egyptians donkeys years ago, um, but it was actually very well described by Hippocrates in the 5th century BC. And he has four clear phrases, what he describes about gout, and they're all very, very telling. One is that it's, they say it's more common in women after the menses, uh, sorry, after the menopause, and we certainly know that women after the menopause are more prone to develop it. Um, it's more common in the big toe, and he also called it the unwalkable disease right. and the disease of kings, because back then only rich people who ate lots and lots of really rich food got it, but now obviously anybody can get gout. Yeah. Um, particularly because our diet's very poor. Yeah. I suppose I've maybe rightly or wrongly always stereotyped gout as sort of a very fatty diet um you know sort of lots of red meat oils also alcohol um and i suppose part of the gout management is perhaps lifestyle advice absolutely lifestyle modification is really important it's the purines within our diet that can cause um, gout and we get purines in as you've mentioned um, lots of alcohol and also meat, red meat in particular. So um, the Latin word gutta is where gout comes from, and gutta means drop. And this goes back to the four humours. So way back when, it was thought that we had four humours in our body, black bile, yellow bile, 
phlegm, and I've completely forgot the fourth one. <laughs> but anyway, um, when these four humours are completely balanced, this ensures health. When one is in excess, then the excess humour drops into the joint and causes inflammation. Right. So it's that dropping or that gutter of the excess humour into the joint that's causing the gout. We'll have to tell Mrs. Maple that. Yeah, I'm sure she'll like that. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at RCP London. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.